0: Bill Real here with Mormon Discussion Podcast. I want to make an announcement before we jump into the episode, but we have an event on November fourth in Henderson, Nevada, uh, right next door to Las Vegas, where we are going to spend an evening on a Saturday night. Uh, this will be a dinner and then several hours of discussion and question and answers regarding the historical context and events and experiences of Joseph Smith with his folk magic and treasure digging. You can find the details of this on Mormon Discussion's website, mormondiscussionpodcast.org. You can also find it on the website, eventbrite.com. Simply do a search for Mormon space discussion, Mormon discussion at eventbrite.com. Tickets for this for the dinner beforehand and the presentation afterward is a total of 25 bucks a person. And if you just want to come to the presentation and be part of that conversation and question and answer session, that is only 10 bucks a person. And we have up to 40 seats available for this event. And uh, there are already some of those seats taken. So November 4th, Henderson, Nevada Mormon Discussion Podcast will be doing a presentation on Joseph Smith's folk magic and treasure digging. Again, check out the website, MormonDiscussionPodcast.org. You can probably also find it on Facebook on the Mormon Discussion website or EventBright.com. Do a search for Mormon Discussion. 25 bucks for the whole thing, dinner and presentation or 10 bucks just for the presentation November 4th in Henderson, Nevada. Hope to see you there. Mormon Discussion Podcast is about helping Latter-day Saints like you lead with faith while tackling deeper, complex issues within Mormonism. All financial support goes directly towards keeping the podcast alive and supporting listeners like you. To support the podcast, please consider becoming a premium subscriber at mormondiscussionpodcast.org. Again, that's Mormon Discussion Podcast, all one word, dot org. You can do this for as little as $3 a month or $25 a year. And this will also reward you by letting you listen to premium episodes like this one months before the general public has access. Thanks for listening. And now, onto what you've been waiting to hear. Welcome to another episode of Mormon Discussion Podcast. I'm your host, Bill Reel grateful for the chance to sit down with you today and to have this conversation. I uh, It is October 2nd, uh, 2017. Uh, I just got back from a wonderful little workshop retreat, uh, spending some time with the, some progmos uh, in Henderson, Nevada, uh, spending some time there with Thomas Worthland McConkie, talking about faith development and uh, stages of faith, as well as doing some really good uh, meditation and mindfulness. Just a, a beautiful time out there, and to everybody who was able to be at that, I just want to say I appreciate each of you and, and the sacred stories you carry with you, and uh, and the chance to meet you and to shake hands and and uh, to hear uh, your experience. Today, I want to talk a little bit about General Conference, and as as we were going through this workshop, uh, I, of course, I knew I would be aware kind of of what talks were were good and which talks were abrasive and it seemed like most of the talks were really soft and good. Uh, Elder Holland's talk, Elder Ukdorf on Saturday morning, uh, Elder Bednar's talk and it seemed like these talks were very focused on grace and trying and the love of the gospel and supporting each other. but there was there was one talk that everybody was saying like felt abrasive. And and I simply went back to my hotel that night, and uh, I put on Elder Oaks' talk and listened to it. And again, I love Elder Oaks. I sustain Elder Oaks, but I want to go through the talk and share from my perspective, my personal perspective, where I feel like the the those on the margins or those out there in progressive or post Mormonism, like what it is about this talk. That is frustrating, and so I hope you'll bear with me, but let's jump right into it.
1: As is evident in our family proclamation, members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints are blessed with unique doctrine and different ways of viewing the world. We participate and even excel in many worldly activities, but on some subjects we forego participation as we seek to follow the teachings of Jesus Christ and his apostles, ancient and modern. In a parable, Jesus described those who heareth the word but become unfruitful when that word is choked by the care of this world and the deceitfulness of riches. Later, Jesus corrected Peter for not savoring the things that be of God, but those that be of man, declaring, For what is a man profited if he shall gain the whole world and lose his own soul? In his final teachings, he told his apostles, If ye were of the world, the world would love his own. But because ye are not of the world, the world hateth you. Similarly, the writings of Jesus' original apostles frequently used the image of the world to represent opposition to gospel teachings. Be not conformed to this world, the apostle Paul taught, for the wisdom of this world is foolishness with God. And beware, he warned, lest any man spoil you, after the tradition of men, after the rudiments of the world, and not after Christ. The Apostle James taught that the friendship of the world is enmity with God. Whosoever, therefore, will be a friend of the world is the enemy of God. The Book of Mormon often uses this image of the opposition of the world. Nephi prophesied the ultimate destruction of those who are built up to become popular in the eyes of the world and those who seek the things of the world. Alma condemned those who were puffed up with the vain things of the world. Lehi's dream shows that those who seek to follow the iron rod, the word of God, will encounter opposition of the world. The occupants of the great and spacious building Lehi saw were mocking and pointing the finger of scorn. In his vision interpreting this dream, Nephi learned that this ridicule and opposition came from the multitudes of the earth, the world, and the wisdom thereof, the pride of the world. So I want to set this up. Elder Oaks first talks
0: about the unique doctrines in the family proclamation. And you're going to see this talk is full of the family proclamation. And, and I simply want to step back and say, like, Mormonism has set some rules up for how doctrine is declared and how doctrines are revealed and which doctrines are binding on the Latter-day Saints. And I, I simply want to stay here, to say here that the family proclamation, I'm not, I'm not saying it's not doctrine or it's not revelation. I am saying though it's not canonized and it has never been accepted by the saints by common consent and placed into our canon so as to be binding on the saints. So the debate becomes if everything in that document can be substantiated as doctrines found somewhere else in Mormonism in places that they have been accepted by common consent and are binding upon the saints. And if there's anything new... Or unique in the family proclamation that cannot be substantiated in some other place than to recognize that whatever that is has not been accepted by common consent and has not been placed in our canon so as to be binding upon the saints. And I think that's an important note to make. The other thing is you can see he is sharing scripture after scripture after scripture after scripture. It almost seemed excessive. And you have to ask yourself, why is Elder Oaks doing that? And he's going to go into it here in a little bit. But it's obvious that he is trying to establish that there is always going to be conflict between the world and the word of God. And that whenever that conflict occurs... That the world is always wrong no matter how soothing it seems. And that the word of God is always right. But as you and I know, this isn't black and white. Like if we separate, like like let's take God for a moment and just set him off to the side for just a moment. And, and recognize too that what Elder Oaks is also doing is saying that when the world and its view conflicts with what the church thinks is the word of God. And it imposes the word of God as it interprets it and thinks that it is. He's also trying to help the average member here at conference see that the church is always right. And I simply want to make the statement that when we look at the church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, on every doctrine, policy, uh historical interpretation it's given, it has never defined itself consistently or over the long haul accurately. Like there's not one single issue that the church has maintained a consistent perspective on from the beginning of the organization of the church till today. So we need to leave room in this conversation to recognize that often the church misunderstands the word of God, imposes on its members and the world its interpretation that it thinks is the word of God, only to have the world be right later. So, for instance, civil rights, priesthood ban, women's suffrage, cremation, birth control, whether homosexuality was a deviant choice people were making. And I could go on and on and on. Like literally, if we want to sit down and we want to make a list, if someone says, Bill, I don't believe you. I want you to make a list. I guarantee if I sat down and had a week to write out everything, like I would have hundreds of things on that list. And some of them would be foundational, including the very nature of God. That Brigham Young got wrong. That later leaders said he taught false doctrine. He erred on the very nature of God. And so this gets serious. And so as we have this conversation with Elder Oaks, we have to be adamant that we say, like, right now, in this moment, the church is not always right. In fact, it is wrong a lot.
1: What is the meaning of these scriptural cautions and commandments not to be of the world or the modern commandment to forsake the world? President Thomas S. Monson summarized these teachings. We must be vigilant in a world which has moved so far from that which is spiritual. It is essential that we reject anything that does not conform to our standards refusing in the process to surrender that which we desire most, eternal life in the kingdom of God. End of quote.
0: I simply want to say here, I'm not sure the world has become less spiritual, although I definitely think the world has become less religious.
1: God created this earth according to his plan to provide his spirit children a place to experience mortality as a necessary step toward the glories he desires for all his children. While there are various kingdoms and glories, our Heavenly Father's ultimate desire for his children is what President Monson called eternal life in the kingdom of God, which is exaltation in families. This is more than salvation— President Russell M. Nelson has reminded us, quote, In God's eternal plan, salvation is an individual matter, but exaltation is a family matter. The question here is,
0: can you be exalted as an individual, or do you need your family? And we recognize, like, families are eternal, and what use is exaltation if I don't have my family close by? But let's recognize, like, set our family aside for a moment. Can somebody get to the highest degree of the celestial kingdom by living the gospel in its absolute purity and fullness to the best of their ability, repenting when they fall short, or in and of themselves are they kept out of the celestial kingdom if everyone around them that is their family doesn't live their part? And I think the gospel recognizes that no one will be withheld from the celestial kingdom because of what someone else has done.
1: The restored gospel of Jesus Christ and the inspired family proclamation, which I will discuss later, are essential teachings to guide mortal preparation for exaltation. The
0: restored gospel of Jesus Christ and the proclamation to the world, both, like, like think about that. He is taking the gospel of Jesus Christ And saying, it and the proclamation do this. And it seems like what he's indicating, when you do it that way, Like, because if everything you want to talk about is simply in the restored gospel of Jesus Christ, there's no need to mention this peripheral document that's never been canonized or accepted by common consent and make it comparable to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Like, that doesn't seem, it seems kind of like an odd statement. Like, there's this giant, encompassing thing, the restored gospel of Jesus Christ. And there's also this document, and in these two are all the truths. Again, I, I, I feel awkward here, I feel uncomfortable Because, again, this document's never been canonized. It's never been accepted by common consent. If there's anything unique in it, then we need to point elsewhere in Mormonism before it is binding upon the saints of the church. And I want to simply say here, the gospel of Jesus Christ is this beautiful thing that is available to everyone in the world, that God is trying to bring all of his children home, and there's not just this point 2% of the population who knows about the right path. Rather, there is a path, and everyone is on it. And God is trying to work to bring his children home, Mormon or non-Mormon. And that Mormonism may be a provider of essential things on that path, but Mormonism is not the path. Like, Mormonism may provide something for everyone in the world on that path. For instance, saving ordinances... But Mormonism isn't the path, because 99.8% of the population then is not on the path. And when you actually consider just activity levels of the church, it's actually 99.3% of the world is not on the path, if Mormonism is the path. And so I simply want to say, like, okay, there's the gospel of Jesus Christ, and some of those truths have been restored in the last days through the prophet Joseph Smith. But there is that big, encompassing, beautiful thing. And then here's this uncanonized, not accepted by common consent document. And if it teaches something that's not in the restored gospel of Jesus Christ over here, then we need to have a conversation about that.
1: Even as we must live with the marriage laws and other traditions of a declining world, those who strive for exaltation must make personal choices in family life according to the lord's way whenever that differs from the world's way this is the first thing that really
0: like got me as i listened to it the first time through when you are this general about telling members of the church that they can that they have responsibility to make decisions in their dynamics of their family that can counter fully what the world is doing, what you've done because you haven't been specific is you've given um, permission, approval, condoning when a family member, say a father, kicks his gay kid out of his house or when a a mother decides like, sorry, we're just not going to have contact with you anymore. Because you're doing this. And, and I just, I think like all too often families make these decisions based on being loyal to the church and in the process do really deep and painful harm, unnecessary, unhealthy, immoral harm to their loved one and to their relationships with their loved ones. That I would be, I'm just me personally, I would want to be
1: really careful
0: about just throwing this out in a quick sentence and moving on.
1: In this mortal life, we have no memory of what preceded our birth and we now experience opposition. We grow and mature spiritually by choosing to obey God's commandments in a succession of right choices. These include covenants and ordinances and repentance when our choices are wrong.
0: These also include sometimes doing something very different than what the church is asking us to do. Because our inner morality, the Holy Ghost within us, tells us to do something different. And I feel like we never in the church acknowledge that sometimes the church gets it wrong and you have a right To follow the Holy Ghost, even when it runs counter to what the church is saying about the Word of God. And maybe I'm off here. Maybe I'm not allowed to say that. Maybe the church would say, no, 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 no. We get it wrong sometimes, but you still have to follow. And I would be
1: really uncomfortable agreeing to that kind of a space. In contrast, if we lack faith in God's plan and are disobedient to or deliberately refrain from its required actions, we forego that growth and maturity. The Book of Mormon teaches this life is the time for men to prepare to meet God. God's plan. Not necessarily the church's plan. The
0: church has at times had to admit that it misunderstood God's plan or that specific leaders within the church had overreached on God's plan. So yes, our obligation is to God's plan. And we, we look to the church to help us frame what God's plan is, but with an understanding that the church sometimes gets God's plan wrong.
1: Latter-day Saints who understand God's plan of salvation have a unique worldview that helps them see the reason for God's commandments the unchangeable nature of His required ordinances, and the fundamental role of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Our Savior's Atonement reclaims us from death and, subject to our repentance, saves us from sin. With that worldview, Latter-day Saints have distinctive priorities and practices and are blessed with the strength to endure the frustrations and pains of mortal life. Inevitably, the actions of those who try to follow God's plan of salvation can cause misunderstanding or even conflict with family members or friends who do not believe its principles. Such conflict is always so. Every generation that has sought to follow God's plan has had challenges. And that sometimes
0: the challenge or the problem has been that we thought we understood God's plan as Mormons to only to resist the counsel and growth and progress of the world only to have to, after that struggle, after realizing we have problems and challenges, acknowledge, oh my goodness, the world had
1: gotten it right and it was us who had misunderstood. Anciently, the prophet Isaiah gave strength to the Israelites, whom he called, Ye that know righteousness, in whose heart is my law. To them he said, Fear ye not the reproach of men, neither be ye afraid of their revilings. But whatever the cause of conflict with those who do not understand or believe God's plan— Those who do understand are always commanded to choose the Lord's way instead of the world's way. Assuming that we have discerned appropriately
0: what is the Lord's way and not having mistaken our own feelings, thoughts, or even the manipulation of the adversary as
1: the Lord's way. The gospel plan each family should follow to prepare for eternal life and exaltation is outlined in the Church's 1995 proclamation, The Family, a Proclamation to the World. Its declarations are, of course, visibly different from some current laws, practices, and advocacy of the world in which we live. Just a thought here. So Mormonism
0: wants to play this line, right? Like there's times in its history it has violated the law of the land. And there are other times in its history that it advocates following the laws of the land, even if there's a discrepancy. Like like we believe in being subject to magistrates, rulers, kings, presidents, all of that stuff. Like we are law-abiding people. And yet we're not.
1: And just to realize that's a paradox in Mormonism. In our day, the differences most evident are cohabitation without marriage, same-sex marriage, and the raising of children in such relationships. Those who do not believe in or aspire to exaltation and are most persuaded by the ways of the world consider this family proclamation as just a statement of policy that should be changed. Don't kid yourself. There's no ifs, ands, or buts. He is speaking to progressive members of the Church. In contrast, Latter-day Saints affirm that the family proclamation defines the nature of family relationships where the most important part of our eternal development can occur. We've witnessed a rapid and increasing public acceptance of cohabitation without marriage and same-sex marriage. The corresponding media advocacy, education, and even occupational requirements pose difficult challenges for Latter-day Saints. We must try to balance the competing demands of following the gospel law in our personal lives and teachings even as we seek to show love for all. In doing so, we sometimes face, but need not fear, what Isaiah called the reproach of men. Converted Latter-day Saints believe that the family proclamation, issued nearly a quarter century ago and now translated into scores of languages, is the Lord's re-emphasis of the gospel truths we need to sustain us through current challenges to the family. So he makes the point here
0: that if if and I'm saying if he's not, if the family if the proclamation to the world is a re-emphasis, meaning it's restating doctrines that already exist within our theology and we can look back on our canonized scripture and that also means it would have been accepted by common consent. And we will find these exact same teachings and precepts. And I simply want to keep making the note that if there's anything in the proclamation that does not exist exist in canonized scripture, then we're not talking apples and apples here. That what he's implying and what the reality is are different.
1: Two examples are same-sex marriage and cohabitation without marriage. Just 18 years after the family proclamation, the United States Supreme Court authorized same-sex marriage, overturning thousands of years of marriage being limited to a man and a woman.
0: Elder Oaks, we also had that same thousands of years being one man and one woman, but we don't have a problem with that discrepancy,
1: right? Right? The shocking percentage of United States children born to a mother not married to the father came more gradually, 5% in 1960, 32% in 1995, and now more than 40%. The family proclamation begins by declaring that marriage between a man and a woman is ordained of God. Is that one man
0: in one woman? Uh, multiple men with one woman like polyandry or is that multiple women with one man which the prophet
1: joseph smith also did and that the family is central to the creator's plan for the eternal destiny of his children it also affirms that gender is an essential characteristic of individual pre-mortal mortal and eternal identity and purpose That works great in a black and white world where there's all men
0: and women. Like there's males, and this is what males look like. And this is females, and this is what females look like. But what do we do with intersex and transgender people? Because is the gender they have,
1: is that also eternal? Hashtag questions are honored. It further declares that God has commanded that The sacred powers of procreation are to be employed only between man and woman, lawfully wedded as husband and wife. Elder Oaks,
0: by your own standard here, Joseph Smith and Brigham Young and John Taylor are apostates. Your own standard. If the proclamation deems that God's doctrine is that man and women. Men, a man and a woman married legally and lawfully is what makes up an approved marriage, then our own leaders, including our founder, was in apostasy. So please tell me there is some flexibility here. Like nobody wants to say Joseph Smith was an apostate. That would be crazy. So either we address polygamy
1: Or we can't just throw out a blanket statement like that. The proclamation affirms the continuing duty of husband and wife to multiply and replenish the earth. Again, you've put an emphasis that
0: marriage is set apart for the multiplying and replenishing of the earth. At the same time, Joseph entered marriages. Joseph Smith, our founding prophet, entered relationships that were not sexual in nature according to the church in some instances and certainly within LDS apologetics. So again, there must be some flexibility here as we address polygamy within the context of our history, within the context of a family, the proclamation
1: to the world. And their solemn responsibility to love and care for each other and for their children. Children are entitled to birth within the bonds of matrimony and to be reared by a father and a mother who honor marital vows with complete fidelity. Elder Oaks,
0: certainly we don't want to hold the gospel plan to people, a husband and a wife, having complete fidelity to each other. Because again, you have declared the prophet Joseph Smith an apostate. And here's why. Joseph Smith, number one, was not sexually faithful to his spouse. Number two, he did not tell his spouse about many of his relationships. Number three, he even lied about some of those relationships. As I look up the word fidelity, the definition is faithfulness to a person, cause, or belief, demonstrated by continuing loyalty and support. Sexual faithfulness to a spouse. Certainly, we don't want to throw Joseph Smith, the founder, under the bus, because he didn't have complete fidelity with Emma. And so we don't want to label Joseph Smith the prophet, the founder of our faith, as an apostate, because he doesn't fit into the family of proclamation to the world.
1: It solemnly warns against the abuse of spouse or offspring. Please tell me, Elder
0: Oaks, you would agree that Joseph lying to Emma and marrying multiple women, including some of them being sexual relationships, behind her back was abusive to her. Tell me, Elder Oaks, that Brigham Young splitting all of his wives and children up in various homes and not able to fully take care of all of them and to some extent neglecting some of them with his time and energy and resources,
1: certainly that was abusive. And it affirms that happiness in family life is most likely to be achieved when founded upon the teachings of the Lord Jesus Christ. Finally, it calls for the promotion of official measures designed to maintain and strengthen the family as the fundamental unit of society. Except when
0: you as a church practice polygamy and the government wanting to promote the healthiness of the family unit wants to fight against polygamy. And in that instance, these rules don't
1: apply. In 1995, a president of the Church and 14 other apostles of the Lord issued these important doctrinal statements. As one of only seven of those apostles still living, I feel obliged to share what led to the family proclamation for the information of all who consider it. The inspiration identifying the need for a proclamation on the family came to the leadership of the Church over 23 years ago. It was a surprise to some who thought the doctrinal truths about marriage and the family were well understood without reinstatement. Nevertheless, we felt the confirmation and we went to work. Subjects were identified and discussed by members of the Quorum of the Twelve for nearly a year. Language was proposed, reviewed, and revised. Prayerfully, we continually pleaded with the Lord for His inspiration on what we should say and how we should say it. We all learned line upon line, precept upon precept, as the Lord has promised. During this revelatory process, a proposed text was presented to the First Presidency, who oversee and promulgate Church teachings and doctrine. After the presidency made further changes, the proclamation on the family was announced by the president of the Church, Gordon B. Hinckley. In the women's meeting of September 23, 1995, he introduced the proclamation with these words. With so much of sophistry that is passed off as truth, with so much of deception concerning standards and values with so much of allurement and enticement to take on the slow stain of the world, we have felt to warn and forewarn, end of quote. I testify that the proclamation on the family is a statement of eternal truth, the will of the Lord for his children who seek eternal life. Now, I simply want to make a historical note
0: here. So it should be noted that... Back on um, October of 2010 at General Conference, uh, President Boyd K. Packer said the following.
1: Fifteen years ago, with the world in turmoil, the first presidency of the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles issued the family a proclamation to the world, the fifth proclamation in the history of the Church. It qualifies, according to definition, as a revelation and uh, would do well that the members of the church to read and follow.
0: Now, it's important to note, so President Packer claimed that the proclamation was a revelation to the world. That it was revelation. And he's using that wording. Now, strangely, the church, as an entity, was not comfortable with that. So when the, when this conference talk was done, when it came out in text, it said something else. It said that President Packer's words were 15 years ago, with the world in turmoil, the first presidency in the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles issued the family, a proclamation to the world, the fifth proclamation in the history of the church. It is a guide that members of the church would do well to read and follow. Do you see the difference? The church wasn't comfortable with President Packer's label of it being a revelation and preferred to label it a guide that members would be well to follow. In other words, like you don't have to, but you're going to generally be better off if you follow it. And I can agree with that. But that's not what Elder Oaks is saying here. He's imposing this document. And that seems very different from the way the church wanted to approach this
1: document back in October of 2010. It has been the basis of church teaching and practice for the last 22 years and will continue so for the future. Consider it as such. Live by it and you will be blessed as you press forward toward eternal life. Again, he is imposing the proclamation
0: as as revelation and as doctrine and as something that has to be followed. And I simply want to step back here and say, here's my suggestion. Elder Oaks, please hear me out. You're going to have to ask, as an entity, the church is going to have to ask for the saints to accept it as common consent As binding on them. Right? Like this document has never been accepted by common consent. It is not scripture. It is not canon. It is not by the very definition our church gives to such things. And if you want to point us back to other places in our canon where these principles are taught and testified to and accepted as doctrine today, then great. Let's do that. Let's have that conversation. In the meantime, The family, a proclamation to the world, is not scripture. It is not canon. It has not been accepted by common consent. And hence, it is not binding on the Latter-day Saints until we do that. So let's just do it. Let's just get it accepted by common consent. Let's impose it. Let's put it in our canon, and let's hold ourselves to it. So that a 50 years from now, 20 years from now, 70 years from now, when we have no choice... But to receive another revelation and make the change, it will look that much worse on the fact that we're holding ourselves and digging our heels in and painting ourselves into this very corner
1: right now. Forty years ago, President Ezra Tap Benson taught that every generation has its tests and its chance to stand and prove itself. I believe our attitude toward and use of the family proclamation is one of those tests for this generation. I pray for all Latter-day Saints to stand firm in that test. Why don't
0: we quote Elder Benson on some of the real crazy stuff he said? Like, why do we pick and choose what things Elder Benson said that are from God and pick and choose which ones are just crazy and we'll never mention again? And if we're going to hold ourselves to this proclamation, it's a test. Brothers and sisters, it's a test for all the members of the church. Then darn it, canonize the thing. Make it binding on the Latter-day Saints. But until it's binding, no Latter-day Saint is held to this. Until Latter-day Saints as a whole have had a chance to raise their hand in common consent of this, it's not a doctrinal statement. It's not a canonized piece of paper that binds the Latter-day Saints to it. It's a guide, and you'd be well to follow it. And don't think for a second, I don't think the Saints would accept it. Elder Oaks, I'm telling you, if you put this document before before the members, and you ask for a raise of hand... Uh, in common consent, to accept this as scripture, 98% of all the saints will raise their hands happily. And we can stick this thing into our doctrine and covenants. It can sit there as the first revelation that we've had in over a hundred years get canonized. And we can hold ourselves to it. But part of me says the church doesn't dare want to do that. Because it knows that at some point in the future it may very well have to disavow this document
1: just as much as Elder Oaks is imposing it in this talk. I close with President Gordon B. Hinckley's teachings uttered two years after the family proclamation was announced. He said, quote, I see a wonderful future in a very uncertain world. If we will cling to our values, if we will build on our inheritance... If we will walk in obedience before the Lord, if we will simply live the gospel, we will be blessed in a magnificent and wonderful way. We will be looked upon as a peculiar people who have found the key to a peculiar happiness. End of quote. I testify of the truth and eternal importance of the family proclamation revealed by the Lord Jesus Christ to his apostles— for the exaltation of the children of God. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. Amen. Elder
0: Oaks, without addressing it, you've thrown Joseph Smith and his marital relationships and unlegally and unlawfully wedded relationships and his relationship with Emma, you've thrown him under the bus Elder Oaks, you've thrown our heritage under the bus by not responding to the fact that some of your things you've said don't mesh with polygamy. Was polygamy okay? Wasn't it? Does it mesh with the a proclamation to the world? Does it mesh with that? And if it doesn't, we have to address it. Otherwise, you've thrown Brigham Young and John Taylor under the bus as well. See, the trouble here is that the proclamation to the world, the family, a proclamation to the world, was a legal document to create an amicus brief for the church so that it could go into these LGBT-seeking um, uh, legalization of marriage, that they could go into these court cases, into these uh, petitions, these propositions being filed and voted on, that they could go in and say, we have an interest in these, and hence we get to participate. And the trouble is... Right is that when we stand back and we create this amicus brief, which we turn into a revelatory document, and then we throw our founder under the bus through the document, and we throw our heritage under the bus, which you just said we need to preserve. And then we hold to something that once we understand that we practice polygamy, we violated the law. Joseph Smith didn't have fidelity. Joseph Smith lied about polygamy. Joseph Smith lied to Emma about what these relationships were and didn't even tell her about many of them. Then you realize like, wait a minute, slow down. Let's talk about this document. And if anybody wants to get mad at me over this conversation, again, the family proclamation has never had a chance to be put before the saints for common consent. And I'm not bound then by this document. And anybody who wants to make the argument otherwise will need to use our own scriptures and canon that was accepted by common consent to have this conversation with me. The fact is that the LGBT issue is the issue Uh, like race and priesthood of the 70s, that if it was 2017, nobody would join a church today that didn't allow those of color in. And in 30 or 40 or 50 years, nobody's going to convert in a developed world with access to information. No one's going to join a church that stands in rails against homosexual people. And the moment we get past our own homophobia and our own bigotry, then we can begin to understand like, wait a minute, maybe there's further light and knowledge here. Gender is eternal, then deal with transgender and intersex, intersex. Fidelity is important, then address Joseph Smith and his relationships. Our heritage is crucial, then discuss the polygamy of Brigham Young and John Taylor and help me see how it meshes with this document. Until then, what you have said in this talk doesn't mesh with our heritage. It doesn't mesh with the fidelity of Joseph Smith. It doesn't mesh with the way our church handled these very issues. It doesn't mesh with us fighting against the government to allow our own peculiar form of marriage to be able to be the law of the land as well. The family, a proclamation to the world, is a guide, and we would be well to follow it. And until we accept it by common consent into our canon, it isn't binding on the Latter-day Saints. My guess is, Elder Oaks, you had a really heavy part of writing this document. As somebody who, who thrived in the legal profession, who served on the Utah Supreme Court, my guess is you participated heavily, had huge influence on this document, and that your heart is there with it. And it also should be stated that you've expressed your feelings on this issue and that if I can simply, as from one human being to another, say that I couldn't disagree more with this position. The public affairs said to you, Elder Oaks, at what point does showing that love cross the line into an inadvertently endorsing behavior? If the son says, well, if you, can, if you love me, can I bring my partner to our home to visit? Can we come home for the holidays? How do you balance that against, for example, concern for other children in the home? Elder Oaks, your response was, that's a decision that needs to be made individually by a person responsible calling upon the Lord for inspiration. Thank you. That's beautiful. Then you continue. I can imagine that in most circumstances, the parents would say, please don't do that. Don't put us into that position. Surely, if they are children in the home who would be influenced by this example, the answer would likely be that. There would also be other factors that would make that like the likely answer. I can also imagine some circumstances in which it might be possible to say, yes, come, but don't expect to stay overnight. Don't expect to be a lengthy house guest. Don't expect us to take you out and introduce you to our friends or to deal with you in a public situation that would imply our approval of your partnership. There are so many different circumstances, it is impossible to give one answer that fits all. Elder Oaks, can I tell you that Elder Christofferson and his parents handled Tom Christofferson very differently? Tom has stated on multiple occasions that his parents loved him and his partner, and they treated them with kindness and love and not any differently than they did their other children. There are, there's more than one way to see this. And unfortunately, we look back in time and we see how we approached homosexuality and we thought, yeah, if somebody masturbates, then they become a, they become a homosexual. And if their dad isn't around enough, they become a homosexual. And if their mom's too heavy handed, they become a homosexual. Like we've always blamed it on something. And the reality is now it's, we know we're almost to the point where we can express certitude with the science that this is a biological thing happening. So strong, in fact, that the church has backed off its position of homosexuality being a choice. And once we understand that people are born this way, once we see this is biological, then it seems silly to not let my gay child and his partner who now are legally and lawfully married, to stay in my home and to love them and to care for them as any other child of mine. Elder Oaks, I get it. You have some real invested interest in this document. But I'm simply saying the world is changing. And it changed on women's suffrage. And it changed on race. And it changed on birth control. And it changed on cremation. And it changed on a hundred other issues. And guess what? Thirty years after it did, so did the church. May the Lord warm each of your shoulders as we try to keep the two great commandments. To love the Lord thy God with all thy might, mind, and strength. And the second like unto the first. To love thy neighbor as thyself. In the sacred name of Jesus Christ. Amen.